I'm Alex Del Sordo. I'm Alex Del Sordo. I'm Alex Del Sordo, and we have we have just Eddie. It's Teddy Sauer. Needed to France. Eric Marie. It's Mahi Drysdale. It is Sir Matthew Vincent. Thank you for being here. I'm Alex Del Sordo with Rover's Choice, and uh, you know we've 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 been away a little bit. Okay, we've taken actually we took almost an entire season off of recording, and this is a podcast. Now we've been getting a lot of comments, people texting, calling, messaging us saying, hey, we love the podcast. And uh, I take that to heart. CJ and I and, and some other folks here at Rover's Choice were sitting down like, who are we going to interview? What are we going to do next? What's the theme of uh, 2024? And, um, you know, I've, I've been fortunate and lucky enough, and you all know that, like, I eat, breathe, and sleep this. I love every minute of this. And I've been able to talk to some of the greatest coaches in the history of rowing. I've talked to athletes around the world and, and we thought we need to change it up. Sticking with the rowing theme. So every person that we interview this season has rowed, maybe still rows or dreams they wish they were rowing. My guest today, I bet wishes he was in a boat right now. Um, we're going to be talking about and talking with entrepreneurs, people that have started businesses. This is near and dear to my heart. I'm obviously an entrepreneur. So these conversations will be a little bit about uh, the rowing. You know, we ask the same question every single time, same one, same one, and you know what it is. Uh, but we're going to get into the journey these men and women have taken in starting businesses. Some are small, some are big. This one is uh, really cool because there's a huge backstory to this one that I I am tied to. Um, and there's a great story about that later, Joe. I can't wait to tell you. I am with Joe Yado, the founder of Gathering Place Brewery in Wisconsin. He is tied to CJ Bound. We're going to get into that too. But Joe, thank you so much for being here, man. Let's rock and roll. How you doing? I'm good, man. It's good to see you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you're the perfect person to start this round of interviews. Uh, but look, I asked the same question and I don't think I actually know the answer to this. Genuinely, I don't know the answer to this. How old were you and where were you when you took that first rowing stroke? Uh, 17, a uh, freshman at Marquette University in Milwaukee. So now, I grew up in I grew up in Kansas. We don't really have water. I didn't know what rowing was until I went to college. And they say go to college and try new things. And rowing seemed to be about as far away from anything I knew. You know, it's funny because like people don't think Wisconsin is a great rowing place either. You know, like there's so many other sports and things you could have done. What drew you to the water in, in, in Milwaukee? What, what drew you? Milwaukee is a, a really bit beautiful city. There are three rivers that flow into the harbor and then out into Lake Michigan. So uh, obviously Madison, UW-Madison has a really strong history of uh, rowing, both men's and women's. Um, Marquette was a, a club program, but when I was there also had a really strong, um, really strong program. And I just loved being out on the water in the city. I mean, we would have 12, 15,000 meters before we had to turn around. So it was great rowing. Uh, it gets cold, but um, but it was really fun. And I always loved seeing the view of the city from the water. You know, I don't think people talk about that enough. Um, in Milwaukee. If, I, if I was in charge of rowing there, I'd say you're going to get the best views ever and, and you you and I rode together at Potomac how beautiful is it making that first bend and seeing the skyline I mean how beautiful is that yeah I mean on the Potomac you come around the corner you've got the Kennedy Center and then you get into the monuments and you're seeing it for sunrise you're seeing it as the sun hits it it's it's unbelievable and um Potomac the river is about four times five times as wide as Milwaukee so when you're when you're rowing through downtown in Milwaukee, you've got enough room for probably two eighths side by side. And there are 17 bridges that we rowed under. So you are rowing through the heart of a city. Um, you are on the water as the city is waking up. And it's it was awesome. You're you're a hell of a salesman for the sport of rowing in, in Milwaukee. But you know, were you any good? Let, let, let's look. You, so you're you're 17 years old. I think you're you're younger than me. How old are you, Joe? I'm 38 now. We're the same yeah. age. So, yeah. so this is 2004 to 2008. You're in college. Um, 
you know, were you any good? Like, was the team, you said they were good. Like, tell me what good to you meant in Milwaukee. Yeah, I think so. Um, one of the biggest races in the Midwest in the fall is the um, the head of the Rock in Rockford, Illinois. Um, as a novice, you know, we had been in a boat for maybe a month. I think we took third in the four and then we won the eight um, with a group that was four open weights and four lightweights. And then, um, you know, I think in, in my rowing career, we were very strong in the Midwest, but we, we didn't go out to the East Coast very often. Uh, when we did, we had good results, you know, making it to the second day of Dad Vale. Um, my senior year, we, we took fifth at the Charles and we were less than um, less than a second and a half from third place. So we, we had we had we, we were a small team, but we were uh, dedicated. We, we worked hard and we got good results. Now, so everyone, everyone listening knows CJ Bound. Uh, is this where you met CJ? Is this is this where he came into your life here uh, around that time? Yes. And he hasn't left uh, like a bad penny. Um, <laughs> so CJ was a year ahead of me at Marquette. And because he had uh, high school rowing experience, he'd been rowing for a long time and certainly knew rowing from his dad. He helped coach the novice team that I was on. And I remember, um, you know, doing an ERG test uh, really early on. And CJ just came around and told me, hit this number. And I, I did. And then he said, all right, hit this number. And I did. And I don't know, maybe it was like a 6K piece. And by about halfway through, all the varsity men were standing behind my ERG. And I didn't know what I was doing. He just told me to do something and I, I, I pulled it to make the number go lower, but I was too dumb to know <laughs> what was going on. Um, so I had CJ was always a, a big advocate in, in, in pushing me to be better. You know, uh, his best 2K was 617. I think that's the number. It was high. It was like 616, 617. And uh, did he impart to you his, his theory of like breaking it into 700 meter chunks? like do 700, do 700. And then, and then you got just you got a little bit left to go. Uh, did he do that with you? No, no. I, I always like to kind of break it up into, um, you know, you, you don't feel anything for the first 250. Yeah. And then, and then you start feeling it around a thousand. And, and my feeling is if I could get it to 350 meters left, then I know yeah. I can hold that pace and you can make your body do what it needs to do. Um, so, yeah, it's, oh, it's super uncomfortable, but it's uh, the it's you, the mental games you have to play. All right. So you graduate in 08 and shortly thereafter, I meet you, I think in 2010. Um, and, you know, Potomac, this is what drew, drew you and I together. Why did you go to D.C.? What what and, and why did you keep rowing? Like what? Tell me that era. Yeah, so I, I graduated in, in 07, and then um, I stuck around Milwaukee and did grad school. And while I was doing that, I was coaching Marquette's novice men's team. So even, and the um, the fall after I graduated, I raced the Charles in a single, which was a really awesome experience. Um, and so I, even, even though I wasn't in the boat, I was still super involved with the sport. And it, it um, you know, when I finished grad school, my my now wife, um, we were interested in moving somewhere else. DC popped up on that list. So we got jobs and moved out there. Um, I lived pretty close to Potomac, but I was a little intimidated because the website said, um, it's like, you can't join. Basically it was like, there's a two year <laughs> waiting list. And I was like, well, I want to get in the boat. So I joined up at Capital Rowing Club in the whole other side of DC from me. And I didn't have a car at the time. So I would ride my bike six miles to practice and practice started at 5 a.m. And then I would ride six miles back, shower and go to work. So I was at um, Capitol for two years and some of our teammates from Potomac uh, were on that squad, like Pete Clemens. Well, yeah, I was gonna say Pete, the, 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 the maniac that he is, he, he brought you over, right? Yeah, yeah. So Pete, Pete and I rode together for a year. Then he he moved over there. Um, so did John Huppy. Yes. Um, and so I stayed with Capital for another year. 
And I, I had a wonderful experience at Capital. The coaching was great. Um, but with Masters Rowing, it was very clear to me that um, the fastest folks at Capital were in their 40s and 50s and credit to them for still pulling those times at those ages but when I was still in my 20s I I wanted to be in a place that I was going to be competitive in my age class so I moved over to Potomac um, I worked my ass off because I really didn't think I was going to make the team um, probably because Pete and others were like yeah we don't take a lot of people um, so I remember that first that first winter training and I remember um, you know, it was kind of a frosty reception at first. Mm -hmm. um, Potomac was a tight knit squad, and then it was there was um there was like a midwinter erg competition at uh, high school in Virginia, and I remember um, uh, I remember like I was halfway through the two k and I realized like I was way ahead of the pace that I wanted, and so I just decided to keep going with it. And I, I, I pulled a good time. I beat some people who were on the team. And then that night was a party in the ballroom at Potomac. And people were a lot friendlier uh, to me after they saw my time. And then that spring, um, you know, I went out to San Diego to race the Crew Classic. And that summer, I uh, made my spot in the, the A-boat for um, uh, Independence Day Regatta in Philly. So I... Potomac was great and really pushed me to uh, up up my game to um, to earn my spot. You know how how important looking back was that era in your life? Because I can tell you that shaped who I am today. Forget about college rowing. Forget about high school rowing. That environment. I think that you and I were so fortunate to be around that talent. And I look at masters rowing today, and I don't see that. You know, you and I had. We were like 24, 25, and then we had a bunch of guys in their 30s and 40s and 50s. I remember like, dude, Nick Holland and Nick Davies and Chad Youngbluff. Like and... Chad Youngbluff literally looked like Superman, right? Yeah. And these guys were, were titans in the industry. They were absolute ballers. And I got to tell you, man, I, I think that that was where I came up with Finish Line. I think that's where you were really brewing up pun intended, uh, your, your, your business. Um, but really like how, how important was those, those three or four years there for you? Like truly? Yeah, it was, it was life-changing for me as well. Um, for a lot of ways from a rowing perspective, I was, um, in some ways at Marquette, it was kind of a, a big fish, small pond. And then rowing on the East coast is just at such another level. And, um, to be in boats with guys who raced, Oxford, Cambridge. Um, you mentioned Chad. Chad won a gold at Pan American Games. You know, we we were we were teammates with people who had represented the U.S. at Olympics, at World Championships, and um, though some of them might have gotten a little slower with age, their technique and more importantly their expectations uh, did not diminish at all. And so, yeah, I got yelled at by. Nick Holland for putting oars in the wrong way um, in the storage rack, but uh, <laughs> you know, but but it was it was um, it was that raising my expectations to their levels of there is a way to do things and there is a way to commit and dedicate yourself. And I was never faster than I was at Potomac, even though I was older than I was in college. But the other thing is those expectations transferred over into other parts of my life. I, you know, the, my job at the time, um, I was doing higher education policy for a, a, a think tank in DC. And I took those same level of um, kind of high standards from Potomac Rowing and, you know, transferred them into my work life. And you're right, at the time I was um, homebrewing and I was getting, really developing my skills at homebrewing and entering brewing competitions and started winning competitions. And it was that same like attention to detail that started with uh, rowing and transferred really into other parts of my life. So it was, it was so foundational to, to who I am today. And I, I did, I'm like getting chills here. You're right. Higher standards, work-life balance, 
everything just everything elevated. And when we walked into that room at 5.15 in the morning, you knew that you had to turn it on, right? And what's awesome about that is you don't turn it off the rest of the day, right? It right. never turns off. Yeah. Yeah. And if you wanted to be good, you were there at five and yes. you stayed after and you did the you did the Saturday morning workouts that were optional. Yeah, air <laughs> yeah, the optional workout on a Saturday would be like three times 50 minute pieces. I hated that. You know, Pete Clements, if you're listening, go fuck yourself. The whole three by five. I remember that workout. I remember the, 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 the doing that and thinking like you're a madman. Like I and still that's the day. That's the day after we would run the exorcist stairs 40 times. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it, it was raising expectations, the higher standards. I mean, I, at that point in my life, cause you were, you, you got married right around the time I did, but I had kids earlier than you. We were, I'm a better father. I'm a better businessman. I'm a better this, I'm a better that because you surround yourself with talent. And I think, look, hear me out. What, there were times when you crushed me on the erg. I would not stop thinking about that until I had a chance to beat you again. You're laughing. But that's the other thing. It's people need to accept that competition is a really good thing. And like, accept that losing is the best thing. Bro, we were going after a seat in the Henley eight and like, I wanted to kill you. I yeah. wanted to kill you. Yeah. No, I, I missed the Henley years. So I, they went the year before and they went the year after I was, I was at Potomac. So I just missed that. But yeah, we, um, it competition helps raise your game. I, I there's no two ways about it, and I've definitely transferred those those lessons over. There have been so many times as a and, and brewing industry is very competitive, but I would say any type of small business is challenging. There are times I think that where we're facing adversity, and I think back to, um, you know, I was a kid from Marquette who walked into a historic boathouse on the East Coast. Uh, with a bunch of people from the Ivy League, and I earned my spot. And you know, it's it's. I think back to that from time to time, where there was zero expectations because they thought I would. I'm sure some people thought I would stop coming to winter workouts and um, you know, powering through, doing those things that were not quite required. But it's what you need to do if you want to get the job done right. And and there are a thousand things in my business experience where. You could do it this way if you want to get it done, but if you want to get it done right, you have to go that put in that extra mile or extra effort, go the extra mile. You know, let's 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 get into your business. So um, here, my story that I lead into this, and, and I thought about this a lot, is uh, I'm a newly wedded husband. I have a child in a in a car seat. You and your wife welcome me to your home. You know, you're, it, it, let's be it's a little apartment in D.C. You know, it's what I'm so about tiny. It's so, so tiny. tiny. Like my the the carrying case of my daughter takes up like a 10th of your living room. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, oh my God, she's a, you could tell she's a person. And you say to me, or I say, hey, can I try your beer? And it was like this blonde lager, you know, something light, something easy. And Emily looks at me after one and a half beers. She goes, I think I'm gonna have to drive you home. I was like, I think I'm gonna have to be driven home. Now, I will say I was a bit of a lightweight. I was young, I was training a lot. But bro, your beer was so good. And we spent the whole night just talking about your vision and your plan. And for me to look back, I am so proud of you. You you went from this micro brew in your fucking like bathtub to, 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 to where you are today. And I can't wait to explain to people and the listeners like how far you have gone. So let, let's talk about that. Where did the idea come from? And like, why did you wanna explore this business, this type of business? So I, I've always been interested in brewing. I got my first home brewing kit right after I graduated from my undergrad in 07. And I started, my first batch of beer was terrible. I choked it down because I had like a sense of pride that this is something I created. But like most things, you get better at it the more you work at it. And I really got better by doing competitions because there would be judges that give you feedback and give you tips on things to tweak in the recipe. And so when we were out there in DC in 2013 and again in 2014, I was um, 
one of the winners of a competition put on by Sam Adams. And so that was the turning point to make my wife and I feel like maybe this hobby can be something more. So we, we moved, uh, we left DC in late 2014. Um, honestly, it was like the week after we won nationals in Grand Rapids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, then we moved, we moved back to Milwaukee to start laying the groundwork for the brewery. And, um, you know, I I'd spent a lot of time over a couple of years uh, putting together the business plan, doing research. On my days off work, I would go to breweries. I would ask questions. I would I would clean equipment. I would do anything I could to see how the professional side of brewing works. And then when we got back to Milwaukee, I still kept brewing. Uh, and then, you know, it was more focused on the business side. How do we raise the money? Uh, brewing equipment is very expensive. And my wife and I had spent our careers in the nonprofit world, which is another way of saying we didn't have that kind of money. Um, and we, we found the money pretty quickly. It took a while to find the space. We signed our lease in September of 2016. So right about two years after we moved to Milwaukee. And then we started demolition, construction, and build out. We hired our head brewer in the spring of 17 and we opened in the summer. So we are, we've been open for about six and a half years and we've grown every year. Somehow we made it through COVID. Um, we now have two locations. Our beer is distributed all across Wisconsin and it's been a wild ride. I used to have a lot less gray hair before I started a business, but <laughs> at least you're not losing all of your hair. That's uh, I'd rather have it turn gray than this crap that I'm going through. Um, well, there's a, there's obviously a lot that we're going to be discussing from this 2016 to 2024. Um, you know, the, there there is one. Okay, so everyone has their own path. And uh, I can, I like comparing ourselves the way you and I are. Like, I think that we're both in a very similar stage in our, in our businesses. Very similar. I think they run parallel. Um, I go in head first so fast. I make decisions off my gut. You're, the, you're different. You, know, you, you, you plan and methodical. Um, what advice do you have for those people that are plan and methodical? Uh, what advice do you have for those folks? Because um, I... I I wouldn't say it's the wrong way. I just wouldn't do it. And I don't really know how your brain functions. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. It is. Uh, it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there's, there's all different kinds of people and um, all different types of business owners. I would say for me, I had, I wrote that business plan as much to convince myself that it was a good idea. Mm. Um, Cause I was walking away from a job that I liked a career that I liked and um, I needed to convince myself that the numbers would work. And the advice that I would say is planning is great, but planning only takes you so far. I think that there are a lot of people out there who have a good idea, but they plan themselves to death. Like at a certain point, you need to take action. And that action should be well-informed. You should have an idea of what you're, you're trying to do, but you could paralyze yourself by planning till you're blue in the face, but being an entrepreneur is scary. It's also exciting. And at a certain point, you just gotta, you just gotta go for it. You know, the planning thing. Yeah, I, I get that. You need to take action. Um, I don't, this, this round of podcast interviews are a little bit different, you know? Um, so I'm, we're testing, you and I are testing how this works. Like I, how do you, how do you tie that into to, to, to rowing? Like I thought what I thought was you can train and train and train and train, but one day you got to jump on that erg like you did at mid Atlantic erg sprints. And like, I'm going to do it now. I'm going to go, I'm going to try that. I, I'd imagine you were bringing some of that back, right? Like I'm going to jump into this thing full, full tilt. Yeah. I mean, you just like, you know, boat speed doesn't happen the day you get in the boat boat speed happens because you put in thousands of hours of strokes in practice or or on an erg like you just don't get fast all of a sudden it takes planning but at a certain point there comes a time in a race where you need to decide either individually or as a boat like are we gonna are we gonna do this or not are we gonna walk that boat or are we gonna be content to lose by three seats and say you know you know second place is pretty good or are we going to decide now's the time 
where we lay it down and we walk away and we win by open water. I mean, I think people, I, I am six, two, I'm not exceptionally, I mean, I'm, I'm athletic, but I'm not like a physical specimen, like some of the people that we rode with. I think one of the things that set myself apart is I had this mental, I, I think I could be stronger mentally than some, some people yeah. who naturally should have been faster than me, where it just comes a point where you're going to say, I'm, I am not losing this race or I'm not losing this piece in practice because how you practice is how you play. So I know that was a winding answer. But... No, 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 that, that, that's exactly, um, you know, there's this thing I've done a lot of racing lately. Um, and I have said to myself in races, I'm okay with third place. I'm okay. And my God, a little bit more pain or a little bit more, whatever could have gotten me first or second. Um, and I thought that way in the beginning of my business that I'm okay just making a hundred grand this year in revenue. I'm okay making 500 grand this year in revenue. And it's not always about bigger, better. Okay. And, and you know that, like, it's not always about growth and being as big as you possibly can. Cause I've had too many stumbles and I know you have. Um, but it is like, if you're capable of first, go get first. If you're capable of third and you're in fifth, go get third. Right. Yeah. Um, so in 2016, that's a long time, by the way, you sign a lease and you're not, you're not brewing until and selling until summer of 17, right? Was that the, the, the arc? Yeah, 10 months. So those first, those first like 10 months, that first two years, like, can you think back to some of the stuff that just was awful? Like, give, give me some horror stories in those first couple of years. Somebody asked me a couple of years in, like, did you write a business plan? I said, yeah. I said, how does it compare where you're at? How does that compare to what your numbers were in the business plan? I said, not even close. <laughs> not even close. No, of course not. And, and part of that is when I wrote the business plan, there were four breweries in Milwaukee. And in 2016 and 2017, 17 breweries opened. So the market, right. <laughs> Milwaukee was very underserved for a long time. And myself and about... 16 other people realized it all at the same time. <laughs> and and so Milwaukee's city of about 2 million people. So that that number includes the suburbs. It's it's not all like right yeah. in the same neighborhood. But I wrote my business plan with a completely different market landscape than what existed when I entered. And so you just have to you have to figure out ways. You have to adapt. You have to be willing to try things and if it doesn't work some things can be re retooled but some things you just you let it go and you move on to the next thing i feel how like do you, how do you do that how do you let it go so how do, you, how do you let that go so i like to dwell and i my brain just like any other rower i think has an obsessive mentality so how do you move on not always easy because sometimes i've invested a lot either emotionally or financially in an idea and sometimes it doesn't work out. So sometimes I'm kicking myself like, well, it was like dumb for me to even try this. But if you don't try it, you're not going to know. And I I feel like I should also say, like, I don't have all the answers. And it has been this business has been a struggle. It's only in the last six or nine months where I've started to feel comfortable because uh, right as we were getting our footing as establishing our brand in the market, having lots of sales at bars and restaurants, then COVID hit and it closed our tap room and it closed our all of the bars and restaurants that we worked with. So our ability to make revenue like disappeared overnight and then we had to get creative. And it's amazing what you can do when your back is truly against the wall. Um you when when you have no choice but get creative or go bankrupt and if it if 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 i was the only person employed it would suck but i would be fine but i had 13 employees that were relying on me for money to pay their mortgage to pay their childcare and so um you know you you have to figure it out because there are people who count on you and um, 
So what, what are some things that you did, um, the creative things that you did to survive and save your company in that in that era? We switched to online sales. We we I built an online web store in about six hours. By yourself. And we were we, just doing yeah. yourself. Yes. <laughs> I don't have money to hire a web designer. <laughs> so we we figured it out and then we were, you know, people were pulling up in their cars and we were dropping cases in their trunks. You know, anything that we could legally do, we did. Um and it was uh it was challenging it took a long time to recover i I know like most of depending on where you are in the country most of the country moved on from covid in 21 or so i don't think hospitality industry really recovered until 2023 okay so even though restaurants were open people got used to going they got used to um well, just specifically for my industry, they got used to drinking at home. They got used to picking up a six pack at the store and having friends over. And we have beer in cans, so we still can sell in that sales channel, but um, it's not the same. Our margins are not the same as when people come to our tap rooms. That is when the margins are best. And we need those people to come because that's where we make payroll. That's where we make rents. And um so it took a long time for those behaviors to come back. How many, uh, so I, when COVID happened with Finish Line, um, Rower's Choice was, I mean, Rower's Choice really is just a, a, a media brand, right? It's just something, a way to promote rowing. But Finish Line, um, we were lucky enough and fortunate enough to, I had a business partner, uh, or he, the original founder, Dan Reardon, um, wrote, filled out a form that said that we were an essential business because of our marine world and our carbon fiber capabilities. And I, I thank him every chance I get say, thank you for doing that. I relied on somebody else. And like rowing has taught me that rowing has taught me, you got to rely on the guy behind you, the guy in front of you, the coxswain. So I, I, I remember relying on him to do that. I remember working 20 hour days. And there's this thing I remember asking you right before COVID, we were out there visiting. Uh, and I had said, what is it like being a business owner? And you said, well, it's great to being a janitor. I'm a janitor. And I, that's what I am. Were, was that similar to you and your experience that you were, it was 20 hour days. It was nonstop thinking. It was picking up the broom and throwing away the trash when necessary. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the reason I said that I'm the janitor is because, you know, I, I feel like as the business owner, you have to do, sometimes you have to do everything yourself. You have to be willing to roll up the sleeves and sweep the floors and mop the floors um, if shit is going to get done. And so, yeah, when COVID happened, I was trying, we were, I love Wisconsin. Breweries were deemed essential. Um, so <laughs> we, we could produce, but that, you know, we didn't have people coming into the tap room spending their, their dollars the way they used to. So trying to figure out how to keep everybody on the payroll. Um, we didn't end up letting go a single person. Uh, trying to navigate, um, the new federal programs around PPP and the different loans that were available, getting really frustrated when like the first round of those was going by and we didn't know if we were going to get some or if there was going to be a second round. And then you hear like large chain restaurants and companies were getting these loans and it's like, you guys are going to be fine. It's the small businesses like ours that are really on the knife edge about we're going to run out of money in like four weeks. And so trying to navigate all those things, like I got into this because I liked making beer. And now I'm reading like laws and programs from the Treasury Department. Like this is so far out of my wheelhouse, but you it was the difference between keeping the lights on or not. And so you just do it. You just figure it out. You know, I, I'm convinced, um, I, I think, I think row, I think rowing is the greatest sport on earth and there are days I hate it, obviously, but the lessons, you know, it's that sitting down for an hour of power and holding a 144 and, or like when CJ said, you're going to hold this number and holding it. I, I think that I relate that with COVID. Yeah, I, it's like, you have to hold a 144 now 
for the next three fucking years of your life. And if you do, I guarantee you're going to be better. And we have outlasted all of our competition. So I know there were 17 breweries when you started. Where are they at now? Like how, you've, you've clearly outlasted those sons of guns. Yeah, there are there are less. There there are fewer. There are companies around when we started that aren't there anymore. And uh, I mean, I feel I don't. I feel bad. I feel bad for the employees, which I'm sure they found places to go. But no, what I was what I was going to say is that um, some like there's a lot of reasons companies go out of business, and it's not always because they were doing a bad job. Sometimes having a boatload of cash in the bank is all it takes to see you through. So the, the the ones that went away, some of them were making bad beer, some of them weren't, but there's a lot more that goes into it than just having a good product. Um, I will 100% say we are a better company today than we were before. And um, we have a stronger team, our product is better. Um, you know, we have stronger relationships with those with those restaurants. So while it truly, truly sucked, and I do not want to have to go through that experience again, breaking through that barrier to the other side is it's it was transformative. Is there anyone or any like a group of people in that time period that you relied on that that you would, you know, thanked or that you were just so appreciative of in that time? My wife, certainly. I mean, she she is also an owner of this business. This is something that we did together. And, you know, from helping me strategize to just listening to me at the end of the day. Um, I would also say there's a couple of breweries in our neighborhood that we, we collaborate with a lot. And we would get together monthly. And we've been getting together monthly since before COVID. But every time we do, my wife says, how was your therapy session today? <laughs> and it's so true. It's so yeah. important for... Uh, people, especially entrepreneurs, um, founders, to be able to talk with with other founders because they were going through similar struggles, or maybe they've already figured out how to get through something. And I love my friends, and it, I don't mean to say that my friends were not supportive, but for me, I I I looked at my friends as an escape. Mm. And so I, when I was with my friends, I didn't want to think about work. I didn't want to you know, unburden myself on them or tell them all the shit that I'm, I'm going through. Um, now I have it as time has gone on, but, but during the, the thick of it, it was like, I want to hang out with you. Cause I like talking with you about music or movies. I don't want to have, this is a release for me, but having, having a strong support at home and then having the support of these other business owners who in theory, they are my competitors, but that just kind of speaks to how the brewing industry is kind of unique. It's collaborative, but um, yeah, we kind of pulled each other through. I like that. Uh, no, therapy is so important. Um, in rowing, you get you get the boatmates that you text and talk all day long. You know, I remember back when we were at Potomac, we would talk about rowing all day long. Yeah. On chat and random text message change, you know, text chains. Yeah. On, on Fridays, a bunch of us would go to lunch. Even though, like, I had just seen you four hours ago, yeah. and I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get enough. Uh, I want to talk about your growth. Um, so, you know, finish line, we were very proud of this. You know, we did $125,000 in our year one, and we're approaching $2 million in revenue over 11 years or 10 years, 11 years. And that's a combination of like, we, we try new things. You know, we, we just fix both when we refurbish, we buy and sell. So finish line is just not just a brewery in your world. It's not just making, you know, we do other things. What kind of growth did you see from year one to like today? I would say in, in gallons of beer maybe, or how would you define your growth? Cause I'd love to know where you went, how you've gone. Yeah. So we've, we've grown, we've grown about 20% every year. And that is, kind of unusual it seems, um, particularly, high. It seems high yeah i think for the industry i mean growth is easy in those first couple of years because you're not making so much but then yeah. to sustain year over year 20 you know 18 19 20 percent growth year over year for six years i think i'm really proud of that um and no two years of the business have, have been the same so brewing in wisconsin is unique um there are other states like this, but 
but because of what we're able to do by law, like I was running a brewery, so I was running a factory. We had two tap rooms, so I was running two bars and we were self-distributing our beer. So I was running a logistics company. So I was running three different types of businesses at the same time, each with their own challenges. We grew to the point where we started working with a beer distributor and we signed that agreement over the summer. And that is this how summer. we're able to get, yeah, summer. yeah, summer, yeah. summer of 23. Um, so we're about six months into that relationship, but they have been able to get our beer distributed throughout the state. So that's a big point of that, growth. So, so you know, I, I, I think for the person who doesn't really know much about the beer world, explain the difference between local distributing that you're doing private versus what it means to be part of an organization like a distributor. Yeah, so the state law allowed us to self-distribute. Um, let me step back. Typically, the producer sells it to a distributor who marks it up 30%, who sells it to a store or a restaurant who marks it up 30% and then sells it to you. When we self-distributed, we, we cut out the middleman. So we sold directly to the retailer and we kept that 30% margin for us, mm -hmm. which was great for our cash flow um, in those early years. But there's only so many accounts that I can cover in a day. Whereas this distributor has 25 sales reps just in the Milwaukee market. And then they've got their own set of delivery drivers. So they can cover a lot more ground than I could. So while we are giving them that 30% margin, they make up for it in volume. And brewing is an industry that you start to generate those profits when you can hit, um, when you can hit volume. It's definitely a volume game. So, yeah, I... I, you know, it's funny. So CJ texts me and, and he reminds you of things like you were driving it yourself. Yeah. You were driving the beer and, and you still do it. I know that you still do it. I know you're still involved in, in delivery, um, but you were doing it yourself. And that, that self-delivery is, I mean, Christ, sweeping the floors, making sure the brewer is getting his job done, selling, and then going on and then delivering it yourself. Yeah. Driving around to the back my Subaru Outback and just wrecking the suspension on that thing. Um, but because I was the one doing it, because I was the one making the sales calls, making the deliveries, I built those really strong relationships yeah. with the retail accounts. And, you know, I think a lot of businesses are relationship based, but hospitality for sure. Like people knew they had my cell phone. If something was wrong, they called me. If another distributor didn't deliver their beer and they've got an event tomorrow and they need eight kegs. They called me and I, I left my dinner table and I went and made that delivery. One, it brought in a lot of revenue to me, but two, it's about that relationship. And they knew that I would, they could count on me. I would deliver for them literally and important. metaphorically. No, right. Uh, the most important lesson I've learned is uh, you are your business and people buy into that. You know, I, I make the drives. I deliver the boats. I fix the boats. I don't do all the repairs, just like you don't do all the work on the on the beer. And for anyone out there that's even remotely interested in in, in doing a business, you and I do very hands on things. It's not we're not on a computer buying and selling a product over over Amazon or you know doing like that. If you want to be a business owner, man, you got to eat, breathe, and sleep it, and you continue to do that, right? You continue to make that your obsession. Are you? as happy as you were eight years ago has what's your happiness what's your what's your excitement level what's your uh your passion level looking like yeah i i think admittedly it's it's been a bit of a roller coaster over the years um really high highs really low lows i've met really amazing people along the way and i think now you know, as we started year six, you know, we're halfway, six and a half years in. I'm more excited about the business now than I think I have been since opening day. We've got a great team in place. Wow. We're, the quality of our product has improved. We're putting out new things. Um, we have a new brewer on board, a new head brewer. And, you know, together we're, we're, we're having a lot more planning conversations about how we grow and where that comes from. Um, so like I said, every year I've, of business has been different. And so you can't get complacent. 
you have to be willing to adapt and change, but I'm, I'm more excited now than, than I ever have been. Uh, well, you're, that's you're not still, to say there's, that's not to say there's not still hard days. Well, yeah, obviously. But, uh, well, you got a hard day today. It's funny. I don't know how much you want to tell me or, or tell the people listening. Cause this, this goes live in a couple of days. Um, but you know, half your employees have COVID you're in the store right now. Like you got, you got to pump things out. Like what's going on right now that you're comfortable telling yeah, I would just say, you know, production is not automatic. You know, it's it's people that make the products that you use or eat or drink. And so, you know, our, our some of our brewing team is sick right now. Uh, it's also, uh, there's no school today because of the cold weather. There was no school on Friday. There was no school last Tuesday. And so those things of like having kids and you have to stay home like for me and our, our our production team there are there are real human things that happen that impact the business and so um but we still have deadlines and so it's trying to figure out okay how do we make this happen how do we how can we can the beer that needs to be canned this week um so it's nobody's fault but there i think sometimes people forget when Amazon packages just show up on your doorstep that there is still a lot of human yes. interaction that makes our world go round and humans have human needs. And so I think from a business standpoint, it's trying to be adaptable, trying to be um, understanding, trying to help. Um, so it's a, a brewery might be a manufacturing business, but that does not mean it's automatic. No, it's, I, you're, you're right. So, so last question, Joe, and it's, uh, it's about favorite beers. Um, I, you are talking to someone who I, I just don't know much about beer at all. I couldn't tell you about damn near anything. Sometimes I even forget the names of the beers that I like, which is like a sin. I'm, I, I feel terrible. What are some of your favorite beers? Like, what do you, what do you love? What do you love to drink? What, what would be a, a, a good first for me if I'm drinking your beer? Yeah, so we we make a lot of European inspired beer. So we make a lot of lagers. Um, our best seller is an Italian Pilsner, and so that's that's one of my go tos. But then my favorite beer that we make is a Belgian style triple with part cherries. And so it's um it's a really beautiful beer. That recipe started on my stovetop. Uh, that is the beer that won the first Sam Adams competition, and it's what led to everything wow and we we still make that recipe it comes out once a year in october and every time we do um we have lines out the door so people have come to know that beer it's our best-selling seasonal um when we release that beer it's always one of our three best days of sales of the whole year um so Whoa. people have really re yeah people have really responded to that so it's not just me that's biased for this beer that i created but um it really resonates with people here. So why European? You know, you said Italian, Pilsner, Belgium, you know, German, obviously. Like, what? why Why that flavor profile? Yeah, so I, I should say our second best seller is our IPA and our third best is our double IPA. So we, we definitely still make um, IPAs and stouts, dark beers and things. Sure. But, you know, when there's, I think there's an idea in business where you think you know what you are and what actually happens is the market tells you what you are. So what I mean by that is we started out making a variety of different styles of beer and the beers that people kept buying for bars and restaurants were the lagers. Cause I would go into a, a, a place, they'd have 10 tap lines, they have seven IPAs and they'd say, don't try to sell me another IPA. What else do you have? And it's like, well, we've got this, 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 and this. So we really developed a reputation of having variety and we could plug holes in their tap lines. And so the market was telling us, we want more of your loggers, make more of your loggers. And so we started to expand out that, that part of our product range. And so you can have this great idea of what you think you are, what products you're going to make, but it's the market, it's your customers that are going to tell you, this is what you do well, you should keep doing more of this. I love that. I love that your your ego does not get in the way of that of that response. 
right? Like if you had an ego, you'd say, no, 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 no. I'm sticking to what I love like this. No, but I like that you have the ability to recognize that. And that's probably the, one of the best nuggets of advice you've given this entire interview is the market will tell you what you are um, and, and, and stay out of its way. Right. Like stay out of its way. We, we, we finish line, try to be so many other things and think it keeps reminding us, bro, you fix boats really well. You sell them really well. Don't try to do anything else. And yeah. as an entrepreneur, that's hard sometimes to swallow, isn't it? That's a hard pill, I think, for me at least. Yeah, I think about this place I used to live by in D.C. that was open 20 hours a day and served Chinese food and pizza and chicken wings and hamburgers. And it's like, you can't be good at all of those things. <laughs> so figure out what you are good at and do more of it. And And that's kind of our philosophy. Well, that's a good way to end this. Uh, Joe, this has been an awesome interview. And I think for anyone that's listened in, uh, your, your story is wonderful from uh, a guy in Kansas never seeing really any kind of water to finding a sport and being dedicated and then starting a business. And I, they, they run parallel. Joe, um, if, if people want to learn more about Gathering Place, how do they, how do they find it? What do they do? Check us out, gatheringplacebrewing.com, and that'll have a link to our social medias as well. Um, and if you're in the Milwaukee or Wisconsin area, come visit. There it is. Now, can people buy your beer from other states? Is that possible? No, no. Um, there's a lot of laws around shipping. So we cannot sell out of state. But if you know someone who lives in Wisconsin, they personally can buy the beer and they can ship it to you. What was that cow? What's that spotted cow? Isn't that that brewery out there? Yes. Right. Yeah, there's I a brewery. I had employees at Finish Line say, if you're driving through with a truck and trailer, pick me up some. Yeah, no, only we, in Wisconsin. No, only in Wisconsin. All right, everyone listening in, uh, this is Joe Yato, the founder of Gathering Place, Place Brewery. Uh, it's great seeing you, man. Thanks a lot. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. See you guys.